Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I'll just pray for Mafi. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Um, We're excited to hear your word. And we just pray that we would lean in intentionally and just hear your voice speaking to each and every one of us through Mafi. Um, I pray that you would give each of us a personal word, Father, that we can bring into this week. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Laurie. It's amazing pressing intentionally to the Word of God. And even though I'm bringing it, the power doesn't lie in the bringer of the Word of God. The power lies in the Word of God. So even though I'm, I'm sharing the Word of God, even though I'm going to expound these eight verses today, the power does not lie in the giver. It doesn't lie in me, but it actually it lies in, in, in God himself. Johnny spoke yesterday on, uh, on, on, on the Word of God uh, being both written and spoken. And, uh, and there's two different, uh, two different words uh, when it comes to the, the Greek in terms of uh, the word word. You, you, you've, got, you've got logos and rhema. One is a, is a written word of God and one is a spoken word of God. And, it's, and both words are, are used uh, not interchangeably, but used in, in different ways. And, and the reality is the Bible that you're holding in your hand, you have the word of God in your hand. And if you want the spoken word of God in your hand, then you need to open that Bible. And that was something that Johnny was impressing on us. And, and that is why at, at CCC, we, we love to have an open Bible. And if you've got a Bible, then, then bring it with you. We'll use it at most things. Always good to have with you. And this isn't even part of my talk, but I mean, the, the word of God is key. It's primary. How wonderful it would be if we were a church that, uh, and a people that stood in the word of God. Maybe not metaphorically, it would make me taller, but imagine we stood in the word of God for our decision making. We stood in the word of God whenever fear creeps in. We stand in the word of God whenever, whenever we're, 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 we're tempted to go one direction or we're tempted to go back to that thing that we once did. I think the writer of the Hebrews says that the word of God is living and it's active, it's powerful. And, uh, and it's sharp enough to cut through bone and marrow and get to the very heart. 
And it's my prayer that that is what the word of God has done and is doing by the power of the spirit of God in our lives this, uh, this weekend. So anyway, uh, where is the clicker? Here we go. Let's see if this bad boy works. Class. Let me tell you about two events in modern day Olympics. And uh, both of these are incredible moments of glory for different reasons. Um, in what was probably the, the greatest ever four by 100 meter men's relay final of all times, in, uh, in London 2012 Olympics. It was billed as a shootout between the United States and Jamaica. Have we got any Jamaicans here? No Jamaicans? We've got a couple of Yanks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> anyway, it was billed as a, a shootout between the US and Jamaica. And, the, and between the, the, two, the two countries, they had some of the greatest 100 meter runners of all time. You had Tyson Gay and you had Justin Gatlin uh, for, the, for the States. And you had Johan Blake and Usain Bolt for Jamaica and, uh, and Jamaica ends up winning Gordon in a blistering world record of 36.84 uh, seconds and it, and it sent shockwaves through the athletic world and, and the thing is if you've ever saw the video or you watched it live they started slower than the Americans and then they came back in the final bend in what is probably the most powerful third and fourth legs ever to claim the prize. But yet what was perhaps the greatest moment in Olympic history came in Barcelona in 1992. There's probably only a handful of us here, born in 92. But up steps Derek Redmond, a 400 metre runner for Great Britain. And in the 400 metre semi-finals, Derek went into the race amongst the favourites. But as he passed the 250 metre mark on the, on, the, on the back straight, he tore his hamstring, absolutely shredded it, and he crumpled in a heap on the track. And, and, uh, and live picture shows a medical team running over to help him. And in a, an incredible pain, he stood up and he began to limp around the track. One leg wasn't working and he used the other one. All the other athletes had finished. It had shown athletes finishing and it shot back <coughs> to Derek Redmond. And he pushed the medical team away and, and he started hobbling. And his dad from the stand couldn't watch any longer. His dad jumped over the railings and, and the steward came because he thought it was a madman. Dad pushed the steward out of the way and ran over and like, this is my son. He put his arm around the son and he managed to limp his son around the track, around that final corner and up that straight uh, to a standing ovation of around 65,000 odd people. Get on YouTube at some point this week and check that out. It's incredible. So Derek Redmond was disqualified from the race. He did not finish um, because they required outside assistance to finish the race. But yet he's received even more glory than, than someone like even um, Usain Bolt um, because he's seen as somebody who epitomised the Olympic spirit. You know, it, it was the, and Steve showed me this, it was the founder of the modern Olympics, a Frenchman named Baron Pierre de Coubertin, my French is terrible, who said, the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not winning but taking part. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Usually that's a bit of a, a, a sucker punch for losers. But this is what he said, the essential thing in life is not conquering, but fighting well. And so the Olympic spirit was epitomized by participating well. And at the very end of Paul's life, and what is very likely his last letter to 2 Timothy, Paul said, verse seven, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know, Paul is about to finish the race in a second letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. He's doing all he can to ensure that Timothy gets across the line. And John has shown us that, that Timothy has been scared, he's been timid, he, he's been tempted to shrink back. 
and he's a pastor of the church in Ephesus, a melting pot of culture. Paul's already written to the church in Ephesus. Paul's already visited the church in Ephesus and Paul has now established Timothy in the church of Ephesus. Paul knows that Timothy's facing. And Timothy's tempted to shrink back. And Paul is saying, I have finished the race. I've fought the good fight. And he's saying, my arm is around you. I'm encouraging you to go on. And you know, not only Timothy, but thousands of people down the ages, including you and I today, Timothy is both, or sorry, second Timothy is both an arm around the shoulder to get us to the finish line whenever we appear to be down and out, whenever we appear to be limping, when we appear to be struggling. But it's also a baton, a baton that's thrust into our hand whenever the finish line is in sight. So, you know, Johnny has shown us the pattern to contagious discipleship uh, yesterday morning. He has uh, shown us the power uh, required for contagious discipleship. And, uh, and I think as we, as we leave today and as we go back to our, our lives in, in Dublin, I want to call us to contagious discipleship. I want to give us a call to contagious discipleship. So the call to contagious discipleship is a call to remember our audience. Look at verse 1. You know, whenever you run a race, there's so many people that you could be running for. Whether it's, uh, it's in a race for promotion, maybe it's a race for the affections of somebody else, or perhaps even it's a, a race for the top grades. And these are things that I've heard, I've heard you say to me over the, over the past number of years in various different contexts. The reality is we, we can run for the crowd. We can run for the crowd we're, because that's where the glory is. You just have to ask the guys that have done the, done the marathon recently. You can run for the crowd. I'd, I'd done the Derry Marathon in 2014 and at about the 20, 21 mile markers, there's a bit of an incline. And I mean, I, I couldn't face it. I was going along, my, my marker had already left me, I, I lost the time I was going for, and all I heard was, come on, Maffy, come on, Maffy. I had no idea who these people were, but because I had my little badge with my name on it. And, and the reality was, that, that encouraged me. But I mean, I was at mile 21 at that point. I wasn't, I wasn't running for their, for their applause. But imagine if I was running for their applause. The first time I heard them was mile 21. If I was running for their applause, I would have been down and out long before that. But the reality is, that's where the, that's where the glory is, is where the crowd is. There's nothing else like it. You want to please the crowd. Or perhaps you, you can run for your coach. Behind every great athlete, there's a great coach. Maybe you want to please your coach. Or perhaps you want to run for yourself. Uh, and this is the reality for any and every athlete, is that there's a great temptation for, to run for yourselves, to boost your ego, to gain the accolades. And, uh, and if you were in 630 leadership with us a couple of years ago, we went through this. And, and Steve had said, who you run for reveals your motivation. Who you run for reveals your heart. So we pick up in verse 1. Paul is saying to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. We're not going to get to the charge just yet, but look at this. Paul is starting chapter 4 by giving Timothy a big view of God and of the judge who will one day have the final verdict in Timothy's life and in every one of our lives. And so as Paul hands on the baton to Timothy, he's saying to him that if you have any chance of finishing the race, Timmy, you must remember your primary audience. Remember your primary audience. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing. And so as, as we've considered what it means for us to apprentice our lives to Christ, if, if, if we're to finish well, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why do I do the things that I do? I have to ask these questions. Why do I do the things that I do? 
Who am I trying to please? Is there somebody I'm trying to please? Or perhaps whose name am I living for? Or what audience am I running for? Am I running for myself? Is it other people? Is it God? You see in the screen, whose verdict am I most concerned about? There's been a bit of a, a pattern. I've heard this come up a couple of times this weekend. Whose verdict am I most concerned about? Whose verdict are you most concerned about? You know, if, if I'm captivated and, and motivated by those that I'm investing in, so let's say Matthew's a disciple maker at CCC, and if I'm captivated primarily by those who I'm investing in and those who I'm championing to follow Christ, then what happens whenever they go astray? What happens whenever they pack it in and they say, you know what, following Jesus just isn't for me. If I place my hopes and dreams, if, if, if my audience that I'm, that I'm trying to please and, and put my identity in are the people that I'm discipling and, and raising up, then whenever they shrink back, I'm going to be crushed. Or whenever they go on and do well, or they, or they go on to be a, a, a wonderful preacher or fantastic worship leaders or incredible evangelists, or they go on to do great things, what happens to the little old Matthew that's kind of left behind? He's crushed. You know, a contagious disciple will live for the audience of one. A contagious disciple will not be derailed from the prize by the success or by the failures of others. So a contagious disciple is going to be more concerned for the verdict of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And guys, let's be honest, every single one of us would be lying if we said that at every point in our lives, we were inoculated against the verdict of others. Every one of us would be lying. The verdict of others presses in on us. The applause of others often goes to our head. When it goes to our head, it inflates our ego. But equally so, the criticism of others goes to our heart and it crushes our spirit. And Johnny spoke about, about how we functionally live our lives and theologically, many of us believe that we are here and we are living for the audience of one. We, we theologically believe that we are a child of God, that we are his and he is ours. And this is our confessional belief. This is what we confess. But yet so often our functional belief does not match up. There's a gaping hole. There's a huge gap between our confessional belief and our functional belief. And this is why we need discipleship. If you can see an area in your life where your confessional belief does not line up with your functional belief, you need discipleship. And that should be every single one of us. That's me. I confess this, but I love this. <coughs> and I wonder if what we truly believe should actually be, be got from how we're living. You want to get an idea of what you truly believe about, about, uh, about the Lord or, or what you believe about discipleship or, or what you believe about Jesus' second coming? or what you believe perhaps about the, about the gifts of the Spirit, or what you believe about, about all these theological matters, take a look at how you're living. How you're living will reveal what you really believe. We confess one thing, we, we live another, there is a gap, we need discipleship. Discipleship and contagious discipleship will close that gap. So church, I want to tell you the only way that we will finish the race is if we run for the audience of one. Every other audience will mean that we will get disqualified on that day. But you know, it's not just the audience. Um, we must also remember to proclaim the gospel because the call to contagious discipleship is a, a call to remember your audience, but it's also a call to proclaim the gospel. Look at verses two to five. So this is a charge. I give you this charge. And what is the charge? Preach the word. 
Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and with careful <laughs> instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And look at this. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Let's just finish there. You know, church, one of the greatest challenges uh, of any church across any culture and, and time in the last 2,000 years has always been, how do we communicate the unchanging gospel in a changing world? And this is a big value at CCC. Whenever we preach the word, we have to make sure that we are scratching where people are itching. It has to be applicable. We must answer questions that people are asking. It must be relevant. And so in our, in our autumn series, it's going to bring us up to Christmas. We're, we're looking at, at encounters with Jesus in the book of Matthew and we're looking at some of the big questions of life. It must be relevant. John Stott calls this faithful contextualization. And Tim Keller uh, <laughs> defines it as uh, adapting the expression and practice of biblical truth to a people in a particular culture so it is understandable and compelling to him. He said understandable and compelling, but it doesn't finish there without compromising that truth in any way. That's a challenge. How we proclaim the gospel in a way that's understandable and compelling to the people in our context without compromising the truth in any way, shape or form. Guys, it's not a question of whether we contextualize the message or not. It's a question of how we do it. We all live and breathe in a context. Every single one of us car carries, ca carries baggage as we, as we interact with our friends, as, as we read the Bible. Many of us are from many different cultures. We, we are all contextualizing on a day-by-day on -day basis. Uh, last night I was walking with Johnny to the car and, and Moses overheard us chatting. And I came out with a, a line that is common in Northern Ireland that Moses had never heard. And the guy's known me for five years. But because I was with Johnny and he's a fellow Northerner, we just ended up going back into the way the Northerners chat, contextualizing. And I wonder what it's like whenever we are, we're, we're, we're proclaiming the gospel or, or we're with our, our friends, our family, our colleagues, how we proclaim the gospel in such a way that it's understandable to them and it's compelling to them. You know, Jesus was born into the ancient Near East at a time when, um, well, at a different time to us, a different geography to us, different culture, a different climate, completely different to ours, not to mention language, not to mention dress sense, types of work. And what does he do? He goes and tells parables that was common uh, to, to, to their hearers. Chats about agriculture. But yet at the same time, Jesus can address the cultural elites. He can address Nicodemus, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He was able to speak to them in such a way that they, that they understood and it was compelling to them. But yet he was also able to speak to the lowly. He was able to speak to the, the, the demon-possessed man. He was able to speak to the Samaritan woman. He was able to meet them with their, where they were at. Jesus made the gospel relevant to both of them without compromising and without diluting it in any way, shape or form. He was able to communicate in such a way that they both under, understood it and it made a difference to their lives. God is a God that engages with every single culture, engages with every single people group, all generations and every nation. <laughs> and he wants everyone to come to know and hear his life-giving word. And that's going to mean we, you and I are going to have to do a little bit of hard work. It'd be really easy just for us to, 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 to learn a couple of sentences that we've got from the Bible 
and, and, we, and we give that to people. But then for them to understand that and for them to get that in a compelling way, they are going to need to do the hard work. But rather, if we go and do the hard work of contextualizing and, and, uh, and proclaiming the gospel in such a way that our hearers understand, then it's going to be easier for them to receive. And the challenge of this to every contagious disciple is, is how you live out your faith in light of the values of society. And I think that's the difference in uh, somebody being contagious and not contagious. It's how you live out your faith in light of the values of society. Where are the points where your apprenticeship to Jesus rubs up against wider society? You know, Paul calls Timothy to preach the word in season and out. You know, Johnny said yesterday that we do not have a magic bullet, but we do have sufficient scriptures that hit me like a ton of bricks. I just want to get better at, uh, at understanding the word, at crafting it, the, the art of it, and, and, and finding the, the right way in to, to speak to people in my football club. I don't need a magic bullet. I've got sufficient scriptures. I've got sufficient scriptures. But that doesn't take the responsibility away from me to proclaim them sufficient scriptures in a way that is compelling and that the people understand. So, you know, if the scriptures are indeed God-breathed, as we've already heard, then they're sufficient to save. We are not left in the dark. And it's no coincidence that it is from very, these very same scriptures that Paul calls Timothy to preach the word. Because he says to Timothy earlier on um, that, about hearing and knowing the scriptures from infancy and how they are able to save, how they are able to, to teach, correct, rebuke and train in righteousness. So it's the very same scriptures that are able to do this that Paul then calls Timothy to use to preach the word to other people. Church, we have every resource necessary at our disposal within the word of God. We're to be more concerned for God's verdict over us than anyone else. And once, once we are more concerned for God's verdict over us than anyone else, we've got this foundation. And once we map onto this foundation the sufficiency of scripture to to our task, then we will have this confidence to proclaim the word to unbelievers in a helpful way. We need the foundation. We live for the audience of one and we've got a sufficient scriptures with the call to proclaim the word. But look at how we do that. Look at verse two. Correct, rebuke, encourage. How? With great patience and careful instruction. You know, chapter 2, Johnny's already shown us that Paul calls Timmy to play the long game. Considering the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, it calls him to, 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 to patience. And you know, in our instant world, whenever we want things fast, whenever we want things now, when we want things in full, we can actually be a, a refreshing spring of water, waters to other people by being patient with them, by journeying with them, by engaging in the process. You know, people are not projects. Transformation is rarely instant, but instead we're called to enter into the process with them with great patience and with careful instruction. You know, maybe you've been journeying with somebody for a while and, and, and they're struggling to commit themselves wholeheartedly to Christ. Or perhaps you, you've been on, on the other foot. Somebody's been journeying with you. Somebody's been journeying with you while you struggle to commit yourself wholeheartedly to Christ. Let me tell you this. Do not give up. Don't give up. I'm here because somebody didn't give up on me. Some of you are here because other people didn't give up on you. 
whenever Andy had the opportunity to give up on me, he didn't. And be because of that, I'm, I'm here today. Now, he had the opportunity to, to, to go and invest his time elsewhere because, I mean, there, there's other people who were more keen. There were other people that maybe looked like they were better fruit. And whenever the going got tough, what was he going to do? Was he, was he going to withdraw? Was he going to bail? And was he going to go to somebody else who, who was keen? Or was he, or was he going to stick it out? Was, it, was he going to call me back? Do not give up on other people. You know, a river will not cut through rock by its power, but it will by its persistence. You only need to go and take a look at the river, at the, at, uh, at, at, at the oxbows and, and the bends, and you will see what water does when there's persistence. Hi, Abigail. You know, church, we can only do this gently and we can only do this patiently with other people whenever we are concerned about our, our primary audience. If I'm not doing this for the glory of God, then whenever, whenever these people get tough or whenever they go astray, I'm going to be tempted just to pack it in altogether. But if I'm, if, if I, if I'm discipling and my primary audience is the glory of God, then that will motivate me. Do you know why? Because there was a time when it, whenever I wanted to go astray and God still received me back. And there's where the power of the gospel comes in. The very same gospel that drew me back is the power to draw other people back. The very same gospel that saved me and sustained me is able to do that in the lives of other people. You know, if, if, if I'm living for myself, I'm going to be tempted to rush the process. I'm going to be tempted to, to skip the process. I'm tempted to come in heavy-handed. I'm going to be tempted to apply external pressure to look for instant fruit. But if I'm living for the audience of one, then I, I'm, I'm content to be patient that, that they, these people will come along in, in, in God's timing. Why? Because God was patient with me. I, I came along in his timing. Gospel has got to be our motivation. And let's look at the why. We look at the, at the how. Let's look at the why. Verse 3. Look at, look at verse 3 again. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to sit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what the reaching ears want to hear. The question is, is not whether we are being discipled or not. I'm not going to ask you, are you being discipled? The reason being is because I know you are being discipled. And the question is, who is discipling you? We are all being discipled, whether we realize it or not. We are all being conformed into an image, either the image of the world or the image of God. And society wants absolutely nothing to do with God's word whatsoever. Society will reject truth. But, but take a look at verse 3. Notice, it's not a gathering of a great number of teachers to suit their new ideas or their new thoughts. It's not thoughts and ideas that people are being enticed and drawn away by. Look at verse 3. It's their desires. Underneath their rejection of truth, there's always something deeper. It's desires. It's passions. It's an, it's an itch that's being threatened. And you know, whenever, whenever we read the Bible with people, whenever the Bible is open and we read it, we find that it is actually the Bible that ends up reading us. The Bible reads us. God's word is going to threaten our sensitivities. It's going to threaten our preconceived ideas. It's going to threaten our comforts. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't, then it's very possible that we've made God in, in, a, in an image of ourselves. 
The contagious disciple can allow the Bible to read their heart, understanding that the, the, the places that they're feeling the pinch is likely to be an area of their life that is not yet fully surrendered. And again, back to 630 leadership, Steve put it so well. And Steve said, if the God of the Bible never disturbs and challenges you, then you have made a God in your own image who will fit with all the felt needs and desires and the cultural moments that we live in. But he will not be the God that transforms you into the image of his son, Jesus. So if the, if the God of the Bible never disturbs you, never challenges you, you have made God in your own image who will fit with all your felt needs and desires. And because I feel this and because I desire this, then it must be good, it must be right, it must be from God. And we're never going to allow God to change and to challenge what's going on underneath. And you know, Paul is able to pass on the baton to Timothy because first Timothy has wrestled with and he's submitted himself to the sufficiency of scripture. You've heard it before, he's been tempted to shrink back. He's been timid. He's felt the heat. And Paul gives four simple commands to Timothy. Paul says to him to keep your head in all situations. Remain sober-minded, remain steady, hold your nerve. Timmy, don't get intoxicated with the, with the latest fads. Continue in the scriptures. 20 years ago, it was, it was horoscopes and, and that carry on. Now, now, it's, now, now it's manifesting. And I guarantee in a few years time, it's going to be something else. And there's going to be something else again. There's going to be all these fads that uh, the culture and society are going to, going to press in on us. And we're going to be tempted to, 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 to find our hope, to find our purpose, find our identity. And, and find God's will in these things. Paul said to Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Don't, don't get intoxicated with the latest fads. And this is one of the marks of a mature disciple. Timothy, endure hardship. And this is a repeated theme of the book. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to be unpopular. And this is a cost of discipleship. This is a cost of discipleship. Many of us want to be discipled, but whenever we find out the cost to it, we shrink back. Earlier this weekend, I was reflecting on, on Luke chapter 9. And, and in Luke 9, 57 to 62, you have, you have these three different groups of people that come to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you. And the third one comes and, he, and the would-be disciple says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And as a guy who has a family with, with Emma and Abigail and, and, and with you guys and with my blood family, I think that's not an unreasonable request. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And the problem for that guy is that discipleship for him is a possibility which can only be realized whenever certain conditions have been met. The disciple places himself at, 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 at Jesus, at the master's disposal, but at the same time he retains the right to dictate his own terms. And this is something that, that, that Dayton was, was getting at a little bit last night about doing things on on our own terms. Jesus, I'm willing to follow you, but it's going to be on my terms. Jesus, I'm willing to give you 100%, but first, I need to make sure that this, 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 and this are all in order. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I, I don't want to surrender this. And I'm willing to follow you, but, but bear in mind that, that, that this is important to me and I need this. I tell you this, church, if there is something that you need in order to follow Christ, well, that's actually an idol. And that's something that, that, that Christ wants to ruthlessly eliminate from your life. 
let me just clarify that he doesn't want to want to eliminate that thing. He wants to eliminate the hold and the power that thing has over your life. So Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. This one scares me. It does not come naturally to me. And from what we know about Timothy at this point, Timothy is timid. Uh, we, we didn't get to it, but he, he's got frequent stomach problems. And Paul says to take a little wine for your stomach. The guy's anxious. The guy's timid. The guy's tempted to shrink back. Paul tells him to do the work of an evangelist. And even if it doesn't come naturally to you, or, or if, if like me, you're more of a pastoral type of person, caring for those who are believers, or, or maybe you're, you're somebody that's in the background who are fo- who's focusing on the details. If you've got an incredible eye for detail and an incredible eye for or- organizing things. In one sense, you've got Mafia here who, who is, is pastorally gifted. You've got other people here who are, who are gifted with the detail. You've got other people here who are gifted with their voice. You've got other, you've, you've all these different types of gifts. Timothy does not have them all by any stretch, but Paul still tells him, do the work of an evangelist. Each of us are, are called to sow the seed. And this is the mandate of discipleship is to make disciples. We are called to sow the seed. And this is a call for every single one of us as we go out. Johnny was saying that the Great Commission isn't so much go therefore and make disciples, but as you are going, as you are going, make disciples. So do the work of an evangelist. Fourthly, Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Stay faithful to the end. Discharge all the duties he has given you. Don't look over the fence at the duties he's given the other person. I sit up in my, my office and I can see into the, the gardens of the people next door and around me. And I, I see the kind of gardens I want and the kind of gardens I don't want. <coughs> and I'm often taking a look left and thinking, oh, I'd love our place to look like that place. Paul said to Timothy, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Don't look over the fence at the duties he's given to the next person. I wonder who, who are you looking at? <coughs> Whose fence are you looking over? Maybe right now you're, you're, you're more caught up with the favour that God has given somebody else in this season. And you wonder why, why, why God hasn't given you this favour. How come God has promoted somebody else uh, before you and, and, and you maybe just aren't there yet? You're more concerned about where that other person is. You know, the two-talent servant. Remember that parable? Parable of the talents. The two-talent servant was given the very same praise, the very same honour, the very same recognition as a ten-talent servant. And I wonder what's holding you back from discharging the duties of your ministry. And you might think, well, Matthew, I'm not in ministry. You're in ministry. No church. You're in ministry. I'm called to equip you for ministry. And what's holding you back from your ministry? It might be besetting sin. It's the sin that you cannot rid yourself of. It just keeps coming back and hitting you and haunting you and flattening you time and time again. Maybe it's the fear of man. Perhaps it's the cares of the world. I feel that one, the cares of the world. Perhaps it's criticism. Maybe it's past criticism. Somebody has told you something when you were younger and you haven't been able to shift that. Let me tell you, God wants to shift that today. Contagious disciples are those who remember their audience, who proclaim the gospel. And then finally, they are those who will finish well. You know, to this point, Paul has said to Timothy, discharge the duties of your ministry. Verse 6, for I am already poured out like a drink offering and a time for my departure is near. 
you know, Nick shared so helpfully th this last night. And, uh, and Paul's argument runs something like this. Timothy, you must fulfill your duties. Why? Because I'm already at the point of my death. I'm already there. This has already began. As Joshua has followed Moses, as Solomon has followed David, as Elisha has followed Elijah, so now Timothy must follow Paul. And Paul reckons his departure is so imminent that it's already begun. I'm already being poured out. You know, a, a drink offering under Lord Covenant was, was brought before the Lord and it was poured out at his altar. It was poured out completely, poured out unreservedly. It was poured out in full. It was totally given to God. And that's what Paul was saying. That, Timothy, my, my, my life has been totally given before God. It's been totally given to God. Paul's head was not yet on the executioner's block, but his heart was already settled. His heart was already there. And this is a challenge for every disciple of Jesus Christ that one day that they would be so settled in him. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for me. That one day we would be so settled in him that we can say for to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul looks back over 30 years of his ministry since he radically encountered Christ. And do you, do you remember whenever, whenever he radically encountered Christ, Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul stood by while Stephen was stoned. Now Saul has become Paul. And his head is going to be on the executioner's block very shortly. And his head is so, and sorry, his heart is so, so settled. And he can say in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know, he's not been proud. He's not been boastful in and of himself. God has been so abundantly faithful to the old apostle Paul. And he will be so abundantly faithful to you and I. What a wonderful thing it might be for us to say at the end of our lives that we've no regret, we've no shame, we've no, no sense of defeat. There's no inward despairing, there's no, there's no grim <coughs> pessimism, there's no fear of death. He leaves his life content in what he has given to the Lord. And so verse 8 he goes on to say, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have longed for his appearing. This is you and I. Paul knows and he urges Timothy that even though the emperor Nero is going to give his verdict very, very soon, Nero is going to declare him guilty. Nero is going to condemn him to death. There is soon going to be a magnificent reversal of Nero's verdict whenever the Lord, the righteous judge, declares him righteous. There's going to be a magnificent reversal. There's going to be that in our lives as well. On earth, Paul may have been condemned as a failure. In heaven, he'll be, he'll be confirmed and celebrated as faithful. And Timothy is ready to follow suit. Because he too cares for the verdict of the father over that of Nero. So and as Redmond in, in Barcelona in 92 hobbled along, I want to challenge you. Who can you be that spiritual father or mother to? For those hobbling along, those struggling to keep the faith. And if it's nobody at this time, that, that's okay because it is very possible that you are the, the Derek Redmond. You're the one that's hobbling along and you're the one receiving from others. But as we said last night, God will not waste that pain. He will not waste that suffering. He will waste nothing. And he will use that. He will turn, turn that test into be a testimony. And so as our weekend comes to, the, to a close, I wonder where does this leave you? I'd love to invite up the band. Where does this leave you? For some of you, what might it look like to return to Dublin, apprentice to Jesus afresh? 
a new disciple hungry to follow and serve him. Let me encourage you, get around other godly people, maybe a little bit further on the journey, maybe even six months, a year, someday a, a year above you, maybe a year further on in terms of career or else in college. Glean from them, receive from them. And maybe for others of you, you may need to revisit the sufficiency of scripture in your lives. Maybe you've been, you've been uh, conformed to the pattern of the world for far too long. Maybe you've adapted the word of God to suit your passions and desires. This morning, God is calling you. He's calling you back and he's saying, there's still time to do business with me. You know, as we were, as we were singing, uh, Romans 12 came to mind. And uh, it's something that I'd thought about a few weeks back, but I'd forgot about. And in Romans 12, in the, in the message version, so Eugene Peterson uh, writes this, and Eugene says in the, in the message, Romans 12, 1 and 2, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to the culture that you fit into it without thinking. Who needs to hear that? Don't become so well adjusted to, to your culture that you fit into it without thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be radically changed or you'll, you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. We're going to have an opportunity for response. And we're going to respond through the bread and the wine. We stand here today and we sit here today because of what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. The band are going to sing and, uh, and, and as they sing and as we sing, the, the bread and the wine are here. The, the dark red is the alcoholic and the light red is non-alcoholic and all the bread is gluten-free. The band are going to sing and as they sing, why, why, why not search your hearts and cons consider wh where are you today? Where, where do you stand? And do not allow guilt and do not allow shame and do not allow anything to hinder you from coming to Christ.